Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. and welcome to Seriously, the podcast from the New Statesman that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're going to be talking about the new Marvel Netflix show Luke Cage and the film adaptation of Paula Hawkins' best-selling novel The Girl on the Train. Anna has also watched the 1985 John Cusack film The Sure Thing for the first time, so she'll be telling us how that went later on in the show. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. I had quite a cultural weekend and last week actually because it's the London Film Festival. Yeah, I'm very jealous of Anna getting to go to that. I haven't been to any of it. I actually haven't been to much because I do have a full-time job, which is sad. <laughs> but a lot of the freelancers who like don't need to be in offices all day are literally just seeing films constantly and I'm so jealous. So far I've seen Christine, which stars Rebecca Hall. Big fan of Rebecca Hall. It's really good. I knew nothing about it going in and would recommend doing okay. it that way because it's a very famous story based on a real story and if you know what happens in real life then some of the tension is removed and moonlight which is amazing which is this lovely coming of age slash romance about this young black guy and it's really really cool and then finally i saw la la land this weekend which i've been so excited about since the trailer came out which is this like big lush musical with ryan gosling and emma stone and a couple of my friends had seen it and they were like "Mm, not as good as the trailer and no it's amazing it's like (laughs) fully amazing sometimes when i really really love something to the point of like crying with pure love i wonder how much of it is just like coming from me because Mm. i really wanted to connect with the thing but literally within the first 10 minutes, I was just like crying and I just cried the whole thing because it was so much fun and so great and so beautiful and so romantic. And yeah, everyone's got to check it out. I'm a big fan of the pairing of Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, incidentally. Uh, what they, film were they in together? They were in an otherwise quite unremarkable rom-com called Crazy Stupid Love. I need to see that because I know there's a thing where he takes his top off and she's like, oh my god seriously yeah so they are like the b storyline in that the main storyline is about steve carell and julianne moore being like these are all great actors i know but their storyline is kind of a bit more boring i should just recommend you this at the bit at the end shouldn't i i don't know why we're so yeah more discussion of this later (laughs) in the podcast because we definitely plan these things in advance brainstorming live from the seriously duo okay well i definitely think you'll enjoy this movie especially for anyone who's sort of got that nostalgic love in their hearts for like singing in the rain or mm. even like Casablanca there's loads of Casablanca references in it it's just uh, when, when does it so properly perfect. come out not till January oh 
So we've been looking at your emails. We've had one from Anya, who says that she emailed earlier in the year. The Seriously Hive Mind helped her find the show Review. We remember it well. And that's yet another show she can watch while she eats Pringles in her bed. Solidarity. Love it. And she just emails to ask whether either of us have seen How I Live Now, the film adaption of the Meg Rossoff novel. And she said she read the novel years ago when she was a wee 16-year-old and loved how weird it was stumbled across the film on Netflix and it captured her just as much as the book did, although she can't put her finger on why. She describes it as part lame teen coming of age story, but also intriguingly dark and apocalyptic, which is kind of a thing that I definitely like. So Yeah, totally. But I've never heard of it, book or film. So yeah, I good ha- show. I feel like I have, but I can't remember why. But she says she just can't figure out whether it's terrible or a really good piece of young adult literature that probes the boundaries of what love, sanity and society mean. Interesting. Thanks, Anya. We've also heard from Mad who gets in touch to say you mentioned in your last episode wanting to read more books i just have a suggestion i think you'd both enjoy it's called sweet bitter by stephanie danler it's about a young woman just out of college who moves to new york and begins to work at one of the old famous restaurants in union square she's working to find herself and establish herself in the crazy world that is new york city with some underlying feminist themes some of it's quite graphic sex, drugs, etc., she says. <laughs> it's a really enjoyable read with lots of complex, interesting relationships. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'm interested in this as well because all the sort of like trendy New York writers that I love have read this and raved about it or had strong opinions on it. So I'd be definitely interested to get yeah, involved. Yeah, definitely one for the list. Thank you very much, Madeline. The first thing that we're going to discuss this week is The Girl on the Train, a crime thriller starring Emily Blunt as Rachel, a lonely, divorced alcoholic who sees something from her train window that later becomes important evidence in a missing persons case. Adapted from the best-selling novel by Paula Hawkins, it soon becomes clear that Rachel is more involved in the case than she had ever imagined. I saw her from the train. She was she was with this man. Just for a second. Is this her? It's sort of in that Gone Girl vein, this movie, right? It's got the similarity in the title, obviously, of that sort of wistful girl caught up in strange crime situation thing. Also, all those sort of Scandi books do. And it's similar in that you're questioning who the villain is at all times in that sort of traditional crime way, but in a very like modern setting. Yes, and spoilers maybe from here on for either Girl on the Train or Gone Girl, if you are trying to remain spoiler-free for either of those, turn off. I'd be impressed if you'd remain yeah, spoiler-free for Gone Girl. I feel like we should say it. After Rob Kardashian did that Instagram, (laughs) you've basically lost the battle. But as in Gone Girl, where Amy is a a kind of unreliable narrator taken to the max, Rachel is a bit as well. Yeah, they hit you with that straight up, don't they? The difference between them is that Amy is a deliberately unreliable narrator, whereas I feel like Rachel isn't. Rachel wants to get to the bottom of this as much as anyone else does. She wants to know how she was involved. Because Rachel is an alcoholic who suffers from black blackouts she can't remember whether she was there the night this woman went missing whether she was involved whether she killed this woman she has no idea and she's sort of trying to figure that out as much as we are exactly so she's the kind of proxy for the reader in that regard i always like in a thriller to have that character standing in for me i don't like the ones where it's like written in the second person or somehow kind of trying to distance you from the action that's not my thing yeah and you need to have attention 
somewhere and it either has to be like your villain or your protagonist is so unpredictable that you don't know what they're going to do next and you don't know who's going to be hurt that's sort of like one kind of tension that you get in Gone Girl or the tension is like who actually did it and that's basically what this film tries to keep you intrigued by but for me if there's a problem with this story it's that I think it's quite solvable which I also like Mm, in a lot of crime stuff like you want to be able to solve it but I think once you've figured it out a lot of the tension is lost yes and also I feel like the whodunit aspect of this is a statistically likely story Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah exactly that's one of the problems I had with Gone Girl so we're really going to go in for spoilers here now but the problem I feel like with Gone Girl is that you're always set up to suspect the husband they talk about that a lot the husband in Gone Girl is really really suspicious and then it's like oh no it was the crazy bitch woman all along Mm. faking her own death and doing terrible things which is a bit like wow this feeds into our culture's like weird suspicions and narratives about women yeah and then in this they don't do that spoiler alert it was a man it was the husband (laughs) all along it was the sort of most obvious yes suspect and not only had he been having an affair with his second wife's like nanny and killed her he'd also been like gaslighting rachel his first wife the whole time to like make her believe that she was a worse person than she was I guess in one way it's not the most obvious suspect in that Megan's husband is not the guy who did it. No, it's her employer. And it's not her therapist either. Yeah, also Who's also in a relationship with her. It's a third man she was in a relationship with. On one side, I really support that this book is like basically probably quite a realistic portrait of an abusive man who has manipulated three different women that he is or has been in sexual relationships with to completely believe that he's a really, really good guy Mm. all the while doing horrible things to them and he convinces them that they're just imagining things he convinces the police he convinces everyone and i think that's actually a really accurate portrayal of this and i think the way that it happens in the book is that it unfolds quite gently so you get little hints that you don't get in the film like for example rachel can't understand why they still live in the same house there's a bit where she's like i had sex with him on the table where she makes breakfast for her child she cannot understand why he won't move out of their house and anna is desperate to move out of the house too like she doesn't want to stay there and he's like concocted all these elaborate lies about how Anna really loves the house and wants to live there or how they can't move because they don't have enough money all the while he's like going off to Vegas and stuff like that there's layers and layers of lying that start to gradually unpick because you're getting all their different perspectives you start to notice things as a reader that they don't notice because they don't have all the perspectives that we have and that's really really nice but it doesn't come across in the film no i i've not read the book but i think i might actually maybe like at christmas or something when i'm in the mood for a quick like slightly throwaway read Mm. because something that i do generally approve of about this whole story is i feel like it's quite rooted in the history of like railway fiction ah now this is a good thing i hadn't thought of so tell me more so you know the idea of the railway novel which first emerged in britain when we first got trains in like the 19th century ah the idea of novels that were written to be light enough and just long enough to enjoy on a train journey and they were sold cheaply at railway stations right i had no no idea that this was even a genre that existed yeah so a lot of them were thrillers or detective stories or fiction of that kind because that's the kind of thing you want to read on a train right And then coupled with that, you started to get the appearance of trains in fiction as they became a kind of common technology that people used. And there are all kinds of examples of this. But the one that I think is particularly relevant to Girl on a Train is Agatha Christie's The 450 from Paddington. The plot of this, am I right, is that she sees a murder on another train going past. So we've all had that experience, right? Where you're on a train in the dark Mm -hmm. and 
another train going slightly faster than yours comes alongside on the tracks and you can see the lighted windows of the other train and you can see like bored looking sleeping people with their faces pressed up against the window yeah and if it's going in the same direction as you you sort of have a moment where you're with the other people exactly and they either see you and then that's a bit awkward or they don't and you stare at them Mm -hmm. etc etc and so Mm -hmm. in that agatha christie story a friend of miss marple's is on such a train and she sees a man strangling a woman in the lighted window Mm-hmm. of another train and then the trains diverge and like she gets off the train the next stop she's like i saw a woman be killed they can't find her anywhere they can't find out who he was on the train and that's the product of the which story which is great as well because in those days like the compartment of the train means yeah. that you would be the only witness to that you sort of know that no one else on the train could possibly have seen that. exactly so in the same way that rachel in girl on a train you know she's getting this commuter train every single day something we associate with like humdrum repetitiveness mm-hmm. boringness she sees little snapshots of people's lives out of the window and she thinks she sees a clue she sees something weird but this is funny because the way you're rooting this in that like very british genre i think is so important with this book because which is why the film didn't work for me because of the transatlantic relocation so they've moved it to america and i agree with you that there's something that sparks the imagination reading this book as a london train commuter Mm. it's a very specific thing that obviously thousands of thousands of people in the uk are train commuters commuting to big cities in a way that I don't really feel like they are in America. I feel like people tend to drive and to or commute. use underground trains or something. Yeah. It's just because the cities are too far apart. It's I feel. not a very American thing yeah. to do. And it also means that you lose a lot of the little details in this book that make it so relatable, like the idea of popping to the whistle stop off license, yeah. picking up a gin in a tin or a little bottle of wine. You and wrote a really it. good piece about this the fact that they changed Rachel's train drink of choice from being the classic British gin in a tin which is like a slightly posh middle class thing you might buy in the Marks and Spencers at a London station that people drink on trains yeah. like very very and much and somehow that's an acceptable thing to drink on a train mm-hmm. they changed it to her having vodka in a sports yeah, bottle yeah literally sucking mm. this bottle of water with vodka in and like little miniature vodka bottles sort of chinking around in her bag in a way that is just so you associate with like a desperate alcoholic yeah what is lost in the translation is the fact that you basically imagine yourself as Rachel because you're also the girl on the train reading this commuter novel on a Friday night a little drink in your bag maybe looking out of the window and seeing the same people every day and I think Rachel seems weirder as Mm. a result she just seems weirder in the American one and also she goes to like a really expensive bar to drink martinis in this film which is something Rachel in the books could not afford to do which is why she's always on the train drinking because it's the only sort of place that she can do that. It's also not alcoholic behaviour No well I I mean there's all kinds of alcoholics Mm. aren't there but it's just not the Rachel behaviour that that is so self-delusional that we see in this book. And I think that is flagged in the title of the book and the film, right? She's Mm -hmm. the girl on the train. She could be anyone. She's quotidian, she's anonymous, she could be anyone. She's not special or unusual. Which is why it's so funny at the end of this film to sort of try and justify the title. They have this weird moment where she's like, now I sit in a different car on the train and I look forward, not back because I'm not the girl I used to be. And you're like, you can see that that's their stretch to try yeah. and like make the title relevant, but it, it doesn't have quite the same impact, I don't think. Also, can we talk about the fact that Rachel in the book is like overweight, haggard, unattractive, yes. and oh, then yeah, they cast is... Emily Blunt. <laughs> I know, I love that Emily Blunt is like Hollywood's idea of not perfect, a not perfect which is ridiculous. Person. But also she's great. 
I thought she was really, she is really very psych- good. Like, this, she brought yeah. a psychological depth to the role that it she needed. Did, yeah. So despite her like physical miscasting emotionally, she was sort of spot on. So it kind of made up for and it. And it's so frustrating as well because Emily Blunt is British. They never explain why. <laughs> they never explain why, but also she would play a really good British Rachel in a British version of the film, I think. Yeah. So no shade to our American listeners, but why do you ruin everything? <laughs> well, it's not even them though, is it? It's like, Amer- it's American studios thinking Americans won't go and see a film that isn't about America. Yeah. Come on, America loves Downton Abbey. They've yeah. manifestly proven this uh, is not the case. It was an all right film. Yeah, it's an okay thing. I would probably watch it again if it like came up on ITV. On- would you? I even felt like I was watching it again. Again, having read the really? book yeah okay. it was a bit like i know what happens so yeah i don't know i'm not sure i'm not sure it would stand up to a rewatch but we'll see but i think we would maybe suggest people go and read the book if they are interested yeah i think if you're interested in a little snapshot of british, british commuter life, life. <laughs> so dull but worth it Now we're going to talk about Luke Cage, which is a Marvel TV show made for Netflix. It takes place in the same cinematic universe as the Avengers films and Jessica Jones, which we discussed on episode 27, if you're interested. And it stars Mike Coulter as Luke Cage, who is a former convict who was given superhuman strength and unbreakable skin by a sabotaged experiment. After the events of Jessica Jones, he moves back to Harlem and starts fighting crime. shielded the king. Blood everywhere, none of it his. He had bullet holes in his shirt. How did he not get hit? That shotgun blast alone should have killed you. You're amazing. I don't want to be different than anybody else. People need you. Cops can only do so much. I actually really struggled to describe that because I feel like there's this whole history with all of the Marvel characters like Luke Cage is no exception. He's had lots of different like comic book incarnations as well as like a, already appearing in another Marvel TV show, i.e. Jessica Jones. I think he might be in Daredevil as well. I'm not mm. sure. Whilst they claim that he's the same in all of them, there are different aspects. Like in one version of the comics, he's married to Jessica Jones. Oh, really? Yeah, and they have children. Ah. I feel like you have to be like a full-time Marvel expert now to keep track of all these people. Yeah, there's definitely, whenever you discuss anything comic related, there is this whole like rich and very dense backstory to bear in mind. I was wondering, do we think that's why the Marvel Marvel Netflix collaboration seems to be working so well because mm. it gives you a lot more space and time to explore that a bit or do we feel like they actually don't explore that very much in them? No, I think they do and I think you're right that having a character like Luke Cage have his own spin-off TV show really helps then you know, if you see him in like a second series of Jessica Jones or something, you'll be like, oh, right, that guy who has this whole background in Harlem, this stuff happened to him, this is why he's the way he is, rather than just like him walking onto the screen in a different show and them sort of presuming that just by them giving him that name, the audience knows all that back stuff. Yeah, there is a level of knowledge that you sort of need to go in watching Luke Cage, I thought. Mm. Maybe you disagree, but for example, we know as viewers of Jessica Jones that his wife died. Yes and that's that's not really mentioned in the episode though he her name is mentioned in a like yeah I'm always depressed about her way but they never actually say oh yeah your wife who died so I think if you hadn't seen any of Jessica Jones it might be obvious just from the tone and they do do that in lots of sort of crime detective things where the like lead 
PC is a bit like he has a past, he's mm. depressed, he drinks or whatever. But I, yeah, I just thought that there was a level of assumed knowledge. But generally, I feel like the style of Luke Cage is more in that direction anyway, to like hint at things and sort of just shade in people's backgrounds lightly and let you do the rest in your head. One thing I really, really liked about it is how textured the world of it is. I completely agree. So I know Jessica Jones was supposed to be Hell... I think Daredevil is as well. It's supposed to be Hell's Kitchen in New York. But not being a massive aficionado of New York neighborhoods. It wasn't recognizable to me. It was to me it was just like generic New York cinematic mm-hmm. background whereas the Harlem of Luke Cage feels very like textured and real and distinct. Yeah, and you get a sense in the first episode of all these sort of competing factions that feel very rooted in a real place. Gentrification seems to be a big issue. Mm. And there's a lot of like conversation around keeping Harlem black and not letting blackness basically be priced out of the neighbourhood yeah. or whitewashed from the neighbourhood. One thing this show seems to do very well from the off is its minor characters seem to have quite a good internal life already. Like yeah. random women that are in a club or people hanging out in a barbershop seem to get more detail in their characterization and a bit more depth than perhaps in other Marvel Netflix series. Yes, that's true. It feels a lot more like an ensemble, even though it is Luke Cage's show, Mm -hmm. because his character is, I think, quite naturally retiring. He's not like an Iron Man arrogant front and centre superhero. Or a Jessica Jones constantly wisecracking, self-deprecating, insecure. At the start of this show, the whole point for him is to fade into the background that's why Mm -hmm. he's gone back to Harlem he just wants to like fit in somewhere he belongs he doesn't want to be the center of attention or anything like that which is why he's just taken a a job like sweeping up at a barber shop and washing dishes at a club as a result it feels a lot more like an ensemble so maybe that gap allows other characters to step up a bit and fill that space yeah that's a really good point I didn't think of it that way but maybe that's why it feels a little bit more detailed i think the only place where it gets let down sometimes is the dialogue Mm. which i find i found quite just cliched and like a bit jarring in the first like there's a bit where he you know he says do you think i asked for this and it's like oh haven't we heard this in (laughs) every superhero thing ever and it can clang a bit one of the storylines is to do with like gangs and gangsters and people Mm -hmm. controlling turf and doing arms deals and this kind of stuff some of the dialogue around that is like very out of a film from the 70s yeah and it can feel a little bit disengaged from the reality sometimes i think which is a shame because everything else is done so well one thing i think is really good about all of these series is the netflix chief content officer said when they were all being commissioned that the idea was that they'd be more in the streets than the clouds Mm. and i think that's something they have done so successfully is of grounding these fantastical superhero stories in reality and it's not all like people bouncing around in tights it feels like in the first episode of luke cage we don't even see any sort of supernatural stuff until like the last three minutes when he like catches a bullet and that's the only part in that episode where anything is really to do with the fact that there are superhuman abilities at stake the rest of it is all about like the crime undercover world of like this this arms dealer right yes exactly and a little bit uh in the pilot episode about the like local politics and corruption Mm -hmm. and gang money and all that kind of stuff one thing i wanted to mention about this was i really liked the music and i'm not sure i was paying attention i read a really good piece about this and about how they wove in so many like interesting musical references to like harlem musicians and stuff and there's also apparently in the imagery and like the books that luke's shown to be reading and all that kind of thing it's very like detailed and sourced so we'll 
will link to that post because it's not a genre of music I know loads about, but I did. But someone with the knowledge has explained it yeah, for us. That's and, great. And as I was listening, I was like, this isn't your standard like TV underscoring music. Like there's something else going on here. That's great. I really love the performance of Mahashala Ali, who plays this villain called Cottonmouth. And he's just such a great actor. He's also yeah. one of the leads in Moonlight. And... I, he's just amazing to watch. There's this great scene in Luke Cage where he's standing in front of a Biggie portrait with, and it's got a crown on it and he sort of is discussing the portrait and then he steps forward and the crown looks like it's on his head and then there's some really like black exploitation rooted violence that mm-hmm. happens that's like really blood everywhere again the real grit of these shows tends to be not the violence that comes from superhuman abilities but just like human on human yeah, totally, <laughs> violence yeah. but he does it so well that whole scene he carries it I just think that scene could so easily be like corny and horrible mm-hmm. but because he's such a great actor he carries it amazingly things like that are what would persuade me to keep watching i think yeah definitely because that is i think partly how luke cage is gonna struggle even is because having forged this really successful partnership with netflix marvel is really pumping out the shows now mm-hmm. and you know these are all like 14 episodes an hour each it's a big time investment if you want to keep up with the marvel universe i think there is mm-hmm. an extent to which maybe the universe is expanding too quickly yeah that's true and i i actually grew exhausted with jessica jones and didn't mm. finish it i think partly because it was quite a psychologically exhausting show yeah i'm not sure with luke cage whether i'll continue or not but i definitely thought i had something about it that i think maybe gave it the edge over some of the other ones that they've had yeah definitely Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, get up, brothers! Don't sit there with your head hanging down. Hey, get up, brothers! I know the ghetto have got you down. But that's something I want to say to you. Hey, get up, brothers! Do any dance that's grooving to you. Yeah, man! So last week, I recommended that Anna watch The Sure Thing, which is a 1985 rom-com directed by Rob Reiner and starring John Cusack and Daphne Zuniga. 
It follows the cross-country winter journey of Gib and Allison, two New England college students, as they try and get to California for Christmas, where Allison's boyfriend and Gib's sure thing hookup await. Well yeah. done. <laughs> so, what did you think? I loved this movie. I think there's oh, something so really bad. weird about it because on there are so many things that I could be like, this was problematic about this movie. Oh, yeah. And there's so many tropes in it that are like, oh yeah, you know, couple, uh, odd couple forced together by extraneous circumstances. There's even like a whole he saves her from being raped scene, mm. which is always like, oh my God, what is this shortcut to intimacy that we do? It's so, so terrible. But it just really tapped into some like deep romantic slash sexual like fantasies of mine. <laughs> Obviously, this is a very like masculine sexual fantasy style film, yes. right? In that the fantasy that we keep returning to is this image of the sure thing, which is this, you know, even the sure thing as a way to refer to a woman is like a bit gross. But this woman who's like gorgeous in that very 80s way with like the high cut bikini. Yeah, yeah. And extremely sexually available and just waiting for him on the other side of the country. Obviously, the real sexual fantasy at the core of it is this idea of like intimacy on the road and like yeah. there's a scene where they wake up that you know they're sort of getting on quite well but in a like pally argue sort of way and then they wake up in the morning and they're spooning each other and it's like oh whoops <laughs> like that kind of thing there's something so innocent and lovely about it that's the heart of the film not all the other that's the obviously the message of the film is like the kind of sexuality that maybe you think you're meant to want as a young person particularly as a young man might not be actually what turns you on and what you really want and he sort of discovers that he wants like this other girl in the process yes exactly who's you know his intellectual match who's maybe not like i mean obviously she's gorgeous but she's not gorgeous in the like baywatch way Mm -hmm. and she doesn't necessarily really like dress for him yeah so those the moments where you're really like oh well they won't they is like yeah when they wake up spooning like that and then there's another bit where he teaches her how to what do they call it i I can't remember what they call it but that thing in america where they it's what we would do is in britain it's a straw pedo which is like oh yeah you put a straw in a bottle of wine and you have to like down the bottle of wine but obviously in america they're a bit like they're not quite so binge drinky and it's like that you pierce a, a hole in the side of your can of beer and then it like shoots down your throat oh yeah i can't remember what that's called shotgunning or something not shotgunning it's something anyway so he's teaching her how to do that and then she like spills beer everywhere and she falls backwards and he's like on top of her and like wiping the beer off her face and it's like a really really intimate really like rom-commy perfect moment Mm. and it like drove me crazy watching it i was like yes and there's a bit no spoilers but there's sort of a like hands touching in the cinema moment in Mm. la la land that's like very similar it's all that sort of like very youthful teenage like nods towards sexual intimacy without being like really overblown and it's just so perfect and it's so like 80s teen movie and I love it and I just yeah I enjoyed those moments so much in this film. Something I learned from reading up about this film after re-watching it for this was that John Cusack was 16 when they made this. Really? Yeah. The he direct- looks old. <laughs> the director had to like go to court with him and get him formally emancipated so that he could work on it. Oh my god, that's crazy. Yeah, so he's he doesn't playing, look that young. He's playing older. He's playing like, well, he's 16 and he's playing like a 19 year old, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. That's funny. That's really funny. It's like his first proper film. I haven't seen him in that much stuff. I've obviously seen 16 Candles and I've seen High Fidelity and things like that. One weird fact I just learned about John Cusack, because I saw this the other day and I was like, must be a different John Cusack. He's got a book coming out with Arundhati Roy. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Isn't that so insane about I got, like conversations between them because they often talk about like civil rights and stuff (laughs) okay i know apparently he's like become a bit of an activist in his older years but i don't know 
he has something doesn't he because at first i was a bit like i don't i don't understand this often happens for me i think when you're introduced to someone whose icon status precedes them yeah where you're like oh he's like an icon of 80s teen movies but to me he's definitely not like you know i would definitely go for ferris bueller over Mm. john cusack any day but then as you watch it obviously you just there's something authentic about him which is often what what you realize because icons they're so removed from any sort of humanity that they might have had like all these pictures of audrey hepburn and then you actually go and watch audrey hepburn films and you're like oh she's actually sort of very authentic and that's why people like her. yeah relatable yeah. yeah so that experience happened to me watching this film as well, well i'm so glad you liked it oh no i really did and i'm definitely gonna watch is it say anything i've never yeah. seen say anything which mm. is a huge film have you seen it no that's something we should do at yeah some we should point. definitely do yeah, that let's yeah. do that so for next week for a little variety we won't be doing that loyal readers of my twitter feed might know that i'm re-watching <laughs> game of thrones well watching i've never seen game of thrones so i'm watching game of thrones from the beginning and i'm currently like halfway through season five so i've nearly ended my journey and caroline you've read all the game of thrones books right all the ones that are published yes girl come on George R. R. Martin get on with it but yes I've read all are the ones that are out are you keenly waiting for, them, for more Game of Thrones books keenly waiting is an odd way to put it I will read them when they come out because I want to know what happens I will also hate myself while I'm doing it okay so you describe your relationship with the Game of Thrones books as sort slightly fraught yeah so like for instance our colleague Helen we were reading them at the same time she stopped reading after the third book because she was like I just can't be reading any more about women getting raped Uh. and I kept going although had the same reservations about it if you know what I mean yeah so I'm like I'm not a fan but I'm also hooked yeah I'm having all these opinions like three years too late as well about like why do we have to keep seeing these unnecessary scenes in Game of Thrones but I am sticking with it. You watched the first episode of Game of Thrones and, and was bored by I did. It. So after I finished reading all the novels, I was like, okay, now I can watch the TV series, watch the first episode of the first series. It was like, why has Sean been here wearing a cloak in snow, bored of this? No. I agree. I actually found the whole first season quite boring. And my boyfriend was really keen for me to watch it. And I would be like, nothing happened all this series. And he's like, what are you talking about? The king died. There's all this stuff has happened. What are you for real? And I would be like, just doesn't feel like anything happened though. It, like, it feels <laughs> really boring so i agree but now halfway through season five i am sort of like really really into it though i still am often like this plot line is boring so i'm gonna pick out a, an episode for you that i think is like sort of game of thrones at its best okay we're both big fans of Arya stark so yes. it'll probably be an episode that revolves around her and then we can sort of maybe discuss what potential the show has and like what is good about it if anything if you find any redeeming features in it yes exactly and i think this can be a space for us to have our game Throat's opinions years after everyone else already yeah. had theirs. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes, where you could leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people find the show. But if you can't wait until next Tuesday to hear from us again, head to seriouslypod.com where you'll find all our back episodes, including our specials on Harry Potter, Love Actually and Friends. We're also available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or just hearing your thoughts on what we've discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word. Tell your friends and family about the podcast.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.